Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 5. Romans, chapter 5. You can find that on page 942 if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. And although we'll be touching on a number of verses in this chapter, we're specifically going to be focused on verses 17 through 19. So Romans 5, verses 17 through 19. Now, we have come together this morning to celebrate the fact of Jesus' resurrection. He is risen. We've also come together to celebrate the effect of his resurrection. I suppose you could say that this is what brings us together every Sunday, since we would not come together if Jesus was still in the grave. But it's on this day that the gathering of God's people is especially sweet. So I'm glad you're here. And I'm glad you're here because this day marks the anniversary of Jesus' triumph over the grave, thus fulfilling all hope and securing life for all who believe in him. He is risen. This morning, I felt that it was appropriate for us to spend a little more time contemplating not only the reality of Jesus' resurrection, but also the significance of it. On Friday, in our joint Good Friday service with a couple other churches, uh, we gave special attention to the way that Jesus emptied himself and went to the cross, where he gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for sin. There, the Son of God was crushed for our transgressions. There he was pierced for our iniquity. Upon him was placed the awful weight of our sin. And for those sins he suffered God's perfect and just wrath, drinking dry the cup that was set before him. He was buried in accordance with the scriptures. His broken body laid in the borrowed tomb of a rich man. But on the third day, God raised him from the grave. Death's grip on him was broken, and the promise of the gospel was made secure. Praise be to God. Now, it would be a real shame for us to come together this morning in celebration of Jesus' resurrection and not to go from this place understanding why it actually matters for us. Last week, we talked about the gospel, what it is, and what we're to do with it. We, we saw how the resurrection of Jesus is connected to the promise that God had made to King David that he would have a son who would sit on an eternal throne. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to take a deeper dive into the why of Jesus' work on the cross and the why of his resurrection from the grave, why that matters for us. And I want to do that by looking at what Paul has to say here in Romans 5. So we'll pick up again next week in Acts 13, talking about the response that people had in the city of Antioch, Pisidia, uh, to the gospel as it was shared to them. Today, we're just going to be focused on the abundance of God's grace and how our hope is fixed in Christ and in his resurrection. So let's begin by reading our text together. If you would, please stand with me as I read God's word. Once again, that's Romans 5, starting in verse 17, reading through verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, the book of Romans is not unlike Lake Superior. It is beautiful, it is clear, but it is deep. And it can get very technical. The mysteries that are laid open before us in this book are rich and they are inexhaustible. What Paul explains to us in this book, these doctrines are vital, they are critical, and they are core to the convictions of our faith. And in this passage in particular, Paul explains to us the the why of the work of Jesus, why it matters for us. And he does this by establishing a connection between Jesus and Adam and then us. And theologians have described this as the doctrine of federal headship. Now, you don't actually have to remember that term, but you do need to have a handle on the concept. In order to appreciate and understand how the death of Jesus and how the resurrection of Jesus actually come to matter for you and for me, you do need to see how this is all connected together. Because the gospel teaches us to trust in the work of Christ for us. And Paul helps us to see in this passage how Jesus is able to stand in our place and secure righteousness and life for us. It comes down to the gift of God's abundant grace. God's abundant grace. And that's really what I want to point your attention to this morning. That is the theme, or the main idea, if you will, that flows like a river through these verses to our thirsty souls. It's God's abundant grace in Christ that has secured our righteousness and our freedom and our life. So what Paul says here helps us to understand the reason why we needed Jesus to rescue us. Why we cannot hope in a salvation in any other Savior and why our hope in Christ is secure. Why it will not disappoint. So in our time this morning, what I want to do is unpack three key points that Paul makes about the abundance of God's grace in Christ, which are present in his death and in his resurrection. So, first, I want to show you that God's grace in Christ is greater than our sin in Adam. God's grace is greater than our sin. Second, I want to show you that God's grace in Christ leads us to life. God's grace in Christ leads us to life. And third, I'm going to show you that God's grace in Christ makes sinners righteous. It makes sinners righteous. So let's start by looking at God's greater grace. Now, when I was in school, uh, my teachers used to have us draw up something called a Venn diagram. How many of you used Venn diagrams? I'm seeing a lot of heads. Oh, I'm seeing some eye rolls. Yeah. So I'm sure that your teachers use them. Uh, If you don't know what a Venn diagram is, what you would do is you would take, you would draw usually two intersecting circles, and you would label each of those circles according to whatever we were supposed to compare and contrast. Uh, Whatever was unique to one and not to the other, 
you'd put in that circle that wasn't intersecting, and whatever those two things had in common with each other, you'd put in that little space that they shared. It's a, it's a really simple way to help make sense of how two things can be like each other, but also different from each other. And uh, that, I think, is a helpful way for understanding this part of the book of Romans. This, this section in Romans is kind of like a Venn diagram where Paul compares and contrasts the person and work of Adam with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, we might pause here for a moment and ask, why do we even need to make a comparison like this in the first place? What on earth does Adam have to do with Jesus? Well, it turns out there's a lot. In fact, it's an essential connection because without it, the work of Christ doesn't make any sense at all. You see, the first man, Adam, opened the door to sin and death to enter into the world. In verses 12 through 14, just before our passage, Paul explains that sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin. And so, death spread to all men because all sinned. So what Paul is saying there is that Adam, as the first man, did something which has affected us all. Genesis 3 describes how Adam broke God's command. He disobeyed him and ate of the fruit which he was forbidden to have eaten of. Now, he did not do that alone. His wife, Eve, did it with him. But Adam ultimately had responsibility. It was his job to protect his wife. It was his job to keep the garden. And when he didn't do either of those things, we see that mankind plunged into rebellion. Rather than fulfill his calling, which was to magnify God by keeping and expanding the garden, Adam threw away paradise in favor of a lie. He believed that he would be better off if he was God. And he chose to believe the lie. He became a rebel. And through his act of defiance, the dark shadow of sin slithered its way into the world, and with it came death. Now God had warned Adam and Eve not to eat of the forbidden tree. He had told them that in the day that they ate of it, they would surely die. And die they did. The fellowship that they had with God was replaced with trembling and fear. There was enmity now. The communion that Adam and Eve had with each other was replaced with strife and contention. Their minds were opened now to understand good and evil, not just the concepts of them, but to understand them in the sense that they could see that stain of sin which it had left upon them, and now they were ashamed of themselves. They tried to cover up the damage, but it was useless because when God called them, they hid. Their hearts fell into corruption and so did their desires. Only one generation later, brother is killing brother and we see that sin is not just a mark of two individuals, but of a whole race. Because of Adam's sin, creation became a savage place became that way because sin had entered in and death with it. And so, Paul says, death spread to all men because all sinned. The reason that Adam matters for understanding the significance of the work of Jesus, specifically his work on the cross and in his resurrection, is because we have to understand the problem 
before we can begin to understand God's solution to that problem. There's a lot of questions and debates happening in our world right now. People asking, why are these bad things happening? The Bible is very clear that sin is a part of each and every one of us because Adam sinned. And because of that sin, and because of our sin, the sentence of death lies on us all. We have corrupt desires for corrupt things. We have cut ourselves off from the God of life, and we need redemption. The problem with humanity is that like death, like like Adam, because of sin, we are all marked for death. Its curse lies over us. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, that in Adam all die. And all there means all. Adam's rebellion has affected us because as his children, we have inherited his corruption. We have inherited his fallenness. We are born into the world, inheriting his nature. When Adam was in the garden, he functioned for us as a representative. He made a decision and acted in a way that has consequences for us all. Now that can be kind of a hard pill for people to swallow. We don't like the idea of someone being able to do something that has more effect on, just as much effect on us as it affects them. Some, like the 5th century British monk Pelagius, have argued that Adam was merely the first sinner after whom everyone simply follows because we all sin. But his view of things fails fully to understand the reason that we all sin and why it fundamentally misses the point that Paul is making here about the significance of Adam for us and the significance of Christ for us. In verse 14, Paul says that since Adam, death has reigned over all, even those whose sinning was not like his transgression. What he means by that is Adam sinned in such a way that he was our representative. When we sin, we, bear, we represent ourselves and yet we show that his mark is still upon us. The point Paul is making in verse 14 is this, that in Adam all died because in Adam all sinned. His decision to act against God is felt by us all. It's felt in the way that we are enslaved to sinful passions. It's felt in the corruption of our desires and of our will. It's felt in the way that we are blind to God and to His righteousness. It's, it's felt in the corruption of creation. It's felt in the sentence of divine judgment that rests on us all, which sentences us ultimately to an eternal punishment in hell, because we have all sinned And even our best attempt at righteousness fall short of his perfect glory and of his his holiness. So Adam matters. Adam matters because it's through his trespass that we've wound up in the mess of sin that we're in. Not that we can cancel out our responsibility, because when we sin, we sin freely, naturally, bound by our love to it. But Adam helps us to see the why behind why people do things. Adam also matters because in the end, he points us to Christ. In verse 14, Paul calls Adam a type of the one who was to come. And just in case you've not connected the dots, he's speaking about Jesus. What Paul means here is that in spite of Adam's failure, 
Adam was meant to draw our attention to someone else. Someone who is able to accomplish what Adam failed to do. Someone who is able to restore what Adam lost. Someone who is able to release us from the bondage that fell on us because of Adam's sin. This is where the comparison and the contrast between Adam and Jesus are so important. Paul has shown us that there is a vital connection between Adam and Jesus. Adam functions as a type of Christ, meaning that Jesus has fulfilled Adam's calling. Jesus restores us to a true humanity. He repairs the divine image that Adam's sin marred and disordered. He redeems us from the curse of sin, and he brings us back into a right relationship with God where we do not have to be afraid of him, even though we're called to fear him, to respect him. We do not have to fear him because the judgment we deserve fell on Christ. Jesus is able to do this because... He is truly human, even as he is truly God. He is, as Paul calls him, the last Adam, whose work of obedience to the Father is able to redeem us from the disobedience of the first Adam and our subsequent sin in him. That is why this connection matters. Just as sin came into the world through one man, now God has arranged for sin to be removed from us through one man. So we need someone who's able to remove the curse of Adam's sin from us. And that person, Paul would have us to understand, is none other than Jesus Christ. So the connection between Adam and Jesus matters, but so do their differences. In verses 15 through 19, Paul explains how the free gift of God's grace in Christ is different than Adam's sin. And he gives us three differences in particular. First, he says that it's a difference of scale. Notice he calls it, it is much more. Second, he says it's a difference in legal result. So whereas Adam's work condemns us, Jesus justifies. And finally, the third difference he points out is that it's a difference in result. So whereas Adam's acts brought us into a state of death, Christ brings us into a state of of life. And that is where we get to the resurrection. As we look at these differences, we can see very clearly that the thread that is holding all these things together is simply this that the grace of God is greater than the sin of man. The grace of God is more abundant than the actions of rebellion that Adam committed and which we commit. That is the focus. Of verse 17. This is what Paul says. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life for all men. So you can see the connection we've been teasing out together between us and Adam very clearly. One man's trespass put us under the tyranny of death. But, because of the abundance of God's grace, that tyranny has been removed and defeated. The grace that is found in the way that God sent His only begotten Son, His beloved Son, into the world is able to do more because of the nature of the perfection of His sacrifice. 
and because of the abundance of God's grace in him. Jesus came into the world, this holy son of God. He became one of us. He became a man. He did not cease to become God, but he added humanity to himself. He lived a perfect life. He took our sins upon himself. He satisfied the demand of holy justice. And he broke death through his resurrection so that all who are joined to him by faith may not remain under the rule of death, but may join him, having received his righteousness as their own, to reign, Paul says, with him in life forevermore. It's the abundance of God's grace and love that has broken the hold that sin has had on us ever since the first Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. It is not an accident that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal prayed to the Father, not what I will, but what you will. Do you see the opposites there? Adam said, no, no, not what you will. What I will. Jesus, as the second Adam, says, No, no, what you will. And then he went to the cross. He went to the cross in obedience, not merely as an example of what it means to love, but as the chief display of love, an effectual sort of love that makes salvation and righteousness a gift of God to come to us freely and justly, delivering us from all unrighteousness to have life in the name of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul plainly states that Jesus was raised from the dead as the first fruits, which is to say that Jesus has paved the way for our hope of life through his resurrection. Paul says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The grace of God is greater than all our sin. Let that sink in for a moment. The grace of God is more. You may be here this morning and you may be struggling with a particular sin. You may be struggling with with a whole host of sins. And the fact that you don't deserve to be in God's presence, that you deserve His wrath, may be strong on your mind this morning. The good news of the gospel is that God's grace is is greater. The abundance of his grace purchases life for us. His grace is able to break that curse that Adam's sin has has held over us. It's a grace that leads us to life in him. And that brings us to our second point. Grace leads us to life. In verse 18, Paul helps to unpack another reason why Jesus' connection to Adam matters for us. So drawing from what he's already said, In verse 17, he explains, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, Paul is using some legal terms here to help us get a better grasp on what God has accomplished by his grace through Jesus. The word here, katakrima, which we have translated as condemnation, is intended to carry a sense of doom, really of punishment, which comes upon us because of Adam's sin. 
So what that means is that when you play sin's game, you win, you win sin's prize, which is death. And because of Adam's position, his trespass, we're told, resulted not only in his death, but in ours as well. But contrast this with what Paul says that Jesus has done. His act of righteousness leads to justification and life. The word that Paul uses here to describe Jesus' righteous act, which is clearly his act on the cross, is dikaiama... I don't know who was going to mess this up. Dikaiamatos. Now... What you need to know about that is it has the same root as the word he uses just for, to describe justification, which is dikaiosin. So what he's, the reason he's done this, if you were looking at this in the Greek, you would see the comparison between what Jesus has done and what we have received at the same word. Righteousness secures our righteousness. It's not always clear in the English. It's really bring that to your attention. One to one. Christ's righteousness results in our righteousness. That word, which we have translated to justification, is a word that describes us in a legal sense before God. What we're meant to understand from this is that the uprightness of Jesus' work secures our uprightness in the sight of God. So just as Adam's sin fit us for destruction, for doom, so Jesus has worked on our behalf to fit us with innocence in the sight of God and life with him. There's been a divine reversal that has taken place, all because of the abundance of God's grace in Jesus. So, understand, Jesus doesn't make it possible for God just to ignore the fact that you're a sinner. No, Jesus makes it so that when God sees those who are in him, he does not see their sin any longer. It is gone. There is no longer any reason to fear doom or punishment because what God sees now is the righteousness of his son draped like a clean white robe around us. The filth of sin is removed from us. We are cleansed and the perfect law of God now looks at us and says, innocent. That's the effect of Jesus' work. Which is why Paul says that it leads not only to our righteousness, but also to life. Adam's sin brought death because that's what sin brings. That's what it brought to Adam. But through the righteousness of Christ and his righteous work on the cross, the dominion and the curse of death is removed because sin is removed. And now the inheritance that we have in Jesus is life. The cross and the empty tomb are vital to each other. The work of righteousness that Paul speaks of, the thing that has undone Adam's curse, which makes us righteous, well, that is the cross. But the empty tomb of Jesus is what brings us full circle to see the measure of God's grace. Because whereas we inherited death through Adam, now we have inherited life through Christ. That's why Paul calls him the first fruit from the dead. That's why he tells the Corinthians that if Jesus isn't risen, then we're above all men most to be pitied. The empty tomb of Christ secures our hope because it shows us that the death of Christ was effective. It shows us that the power of death has been broken. It secures our hope in the grace of God and the fact that Jesus has, is reigning victoriously over the grave. 
Now, in John 11, Jesus told Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, we can believe that. We can know that that is true. We can cling to that no matter the cost because Jesus' tomb is empty. Anyone could say, what? I'm the resurrection and the life. No one else can prove it. In Jesus' resurrection, he proved his claim. You know, and I think that gives us immense hope. Uh, in, in years past, uh, I've been a part of Sunrise Services. We haven't done that here. Maybe we should. But um, I remember growing up, we would go to these Sunrise Services and we'd, where we'd get up early on Easter morning and we'd come together in the darkness of the early morning before the sun was up and we'd meet together. You'd have to bring flashlights because you couldn't see anything. And we would sing together, and then we would read the gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection. Typically, we do this in the church graveyard, and there was a reason for that. As a kid, I always thought it was, it was just to give us a better view of the horizon. But looking back, the reason we did that was very plainly because those bodies, which were underneath the ground where we were standing, they were all put there because of the curse of Adam's sin. But they were put there in hope like seeds put in the soil. Because Jesus has risen from the dead and we have promise of hope that death has been defeated and the promise of eternal life is ours through Christ because of the abundance of God's grace. It's amazing. It's, it's so spooky to walk out in the middle of a graveyard in the middle of, of the dark, right? I mean, you've got to make sure you're not going to trip over something. And as a kid, you're thinking, man, something's going to grab me. But even as we would go, we were reminded that the darkness was never permanent. It was chased away because the death of Christ was not permanent. And so even as we're watching the sun rise up, you feel hope flood your heart because even though you're standing in a place of death, you're seeing the light and the life coming over the horizon, just as we're promised in the Gospels. We hear those words, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And it makes the darkness go away in spectacular fashion because Jesus is alive. And because he's alive, the promise of life is secure for you and me. Jesus' life matters because it's in his life that we have redemption and an eternal promise that we will live forever in him if we are joined to him by faith. That brings us to our third point. You know, in order to have that life, we have to be made righteous. And that's the third thing that I want you to see that Paul has made here, that God's grace makes sinners righteous. Part of the consequence of Adam's sin is that it forced him and it forced Eve into exile away from God. They were cast out of the garden into a world that God told them was going to resist them. Because God cannot dwell with sin. He is holy. His holiness burns against it. Before Adam and Eve could be admitted back into the presence of God, into the fellowship with God, their sin first had to be removed. They had to be made right, made righteous. 
And God had a plan for making that happen. It wasn't a plan that rested on human effort. It was a plan established in the council of the Trinity before the world had ever even been set into motion. It was a plan to secure righteousness for the sons and daughters of man through the work of the Son of God. In verse 19, Paul says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So to put that quite simply, what Paul is saying is that the Son of God humbled himself by becoming a man, emptying himself to become a servant, humbling himself in obedience to the Father, fulfilling the righteous demands of God's holy law, and going to the cross to atone for the transgressions of his people, which is to say that Jesus came to make sinners righteous. Now, Paul's already used the word justified to describe the way that Jesus makes us innocent in God's sight. But the true depth of the love of God and the abundance of his grace is seen in what Paul says earlier in this chapter, which is this, that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He says, for though one will scarcely die for a righteous person, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what the gospel, what the work of Christ does, is it does not say to you, go clean up your life and then come to me. It does not say, go earn my love by doing something. It says, I love you. I have given my son for you. And to show you how fitting and right his sacrifice was, I have exalted him by raising him again from the dead. Your sin is gone. That is the measure of my love. That's what the cross says. That's what the empty tomb says. And it says that to us even while we're yet sinners. And when we believe, we are joined and united to Christ. And that sin is removed. And we receive his righteousness. That's the call of the gospel. To receive what was purchased for you out of the abundance of God's grace. Before we can come to Christ, we must realize that we are indeed sinners who deserve to die. Most of this sermon has been showing how that happened. I think part of the deception of sin, though, is that in it, as it, it, it ultimately it orients us against God and it blinds us to the truth of God's holiness. It lures us down dark paths and it tells us that we need to try harder and figure out a way to make it up to God. And when we try and when we fail, that accuser Satan points at us and laughs and tells us, God could never love you. How could he? But the gospel tells us a different story. It proclaims to us the good news that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came to make sinners clean. He came to make us righteous. And the gospel then opens our ears to hear the call of our humble, loving Savior saying to us, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The burden of your sin, the burden of your shame, your fear, your anxiety, cast it on me. And take my yoke upon yourself. 
for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you're here this morning and you don't have rest, Christ calls to you. He calls to you. He points you to the abundance of his grace and his love. And he calls you to believe. Oh, what a Savior we have. A Savior who saves the lowly. He took the burdens of our sin upon himself. He nailed them to the cross. He buried them to rise no more in the grave. He has risen in victory over them, and they are gone. Jesus has overcome sin through his obedience and by the wounds that were given to him, we are healed and made righteous. There's a song by John Mark McMillan that has really captured what this moment means for us. He says, in his chorus of the song, he says, On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but woke with the keys of hell on that day, firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid death in his grave. He has seated hell and seated us above the fall. In desperate places he paid our wages, one time, once, and for all. Friends, that's the gospel. That's why we're here this morning, because Jesus is alive. The gospel doesn't teach us how to save ourselves. It does not teach us how to earn God's good grace. It does not teach us how to farm righteousness for ourselves. No. It teaches us to believe in the Son of God and through faith to have life in His name on account of what He has done for us. This is the abundance of God's grace towards you and me. And the call of the gospel to you this morning, if you're a believer or an unbeliever, is to believe. Trust in and you will have life in his name. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? Oh, no. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Lord God, thank you so much for the rich gift of your mercy and grace in Christ. Father, as the sun shines down on us, we, we see the benefits of your, your grace. We feel the warmth of it. Father, help us in our hearts to feel the warmth of your grace even this morning, to rest in the immeasurable riches that are ours in Christ. Father, we thank you for the way that Jesus became a man such as we are that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, that he rose in victory over the grave, and that he sits even now at your right hand, awaiting the day when he will call his people to himself. Father, teach us to hold fast to this. Help us, Father, to live in the full knowledge of his grace and mercy, and help us to trust in him according to the promises of your gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.